Raising the Bets is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Raising the Bets, where a Catholic couple raising five kids outside of Boston Join us as we share the joys and challenges of marriage, homeschool, and our adventures near and far as we make sense of the world and experience the best parts of our culture. I'm Dom Bettinelli. And I'm Eleni Bettinelli. So, uh, this is, as we record, Palm Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Yeah. Did you have this when you were a kid? The uh, ads for tractor poles with a guy repeated Sunday three times? I don't think when I was a kid, <laughs> but uh, it was on the radio when I was around here when I was a kid. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. I've, I've, I've certainly been exposed to it, but I think I might have been exposed more to like parodies of it rather than the original thing. Mm. But well, I'm not I don't even know. It's like hazy somewhere back yeah. in there. The stream of consciousness theater is brought to you by. So uh, it is Pub Sunday. And as we approach the end of Lent. Uh, we obviously went to Palm Sunday Mass this morning. Did you think it was weird that we didn't get palms coming in? Don't we usually get palms when we come into church at at our parish? In the past, we have. Yeah, I, I kind of almost remember that maybe there was another time when we didn't get palms at the beginning of Mass, but at the end. Right. So uh, several of my friends said that they got palms at the end of Mass. Yeah, well, I went back to check and uh, the head usher was saying, oh, no, Father's going to bless them and then they'll be available at the end of Mass. Right. I think if they haven't been blessed, then oftentimes they don't give them out until after they've been blessed. But usually at the beginning, oh, yeah, I don't know. I remember at least once where they went down the aisles and handed, and handed them, them out. out. Right. Yeah. After Father blessed them. Yeah. At the end of Mass, like there was this, there was this basket at the front in, in the sanctuary next to the altar and everybody just like mobbed it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was probably a, not the way to do it. Probably not. Yeah. It was, like, it was our, confusing and chaotic. And yeah, several of our anxious kids had anxiety over <laughs> getting bombs. So we sent in the one kid who could, who could do it. Um, yeah. So, uh, Sunday we had beautiful music, had better hymns than you hoped for. Yeah. I see. I, I listened to, um, Hosanna to the King of, no, all glory, laud and honor. You know, yes, that all one? glory, laud and honor. I, I, say, I listened to that one before we went to mass because we almost never hear it. In fact, I think this might've been the first time we've heard it at this parish. Yeah. I mean, all of the hymns today were really solid. They were really good ones. Yeah. Um, in fact, I I can't remember the last time I heard All Are Welcome at, at our parish. I think Father Matt's starting to have an influence on the selection of music. Not perfect yet, but, you know. <laughs> Speaking of Father Matt, uh, he, he, as after the end of the very long Palm Sunday gospel reading, he, he pointed out that the rubrics say there should be a short homily following the gospel on Palm Sunday. Uh, emphasis on short. So he gave a slightly shorter homily. It was not an extremely short homily. Yeah. However, it was a it good was one. An extremely good homily. Yeah. And therefore, I didn't care that it wasn't extremely short because it was good and it was engaging. And yep. Yeah. So he said, uh, he started by saying, like, you know, this gospel, it's not a sad story, even though Jesus dies. It's not a happy story, even though we know the ending is a happy one, you know, the resurrection. Uh, he said, it's the story of every human life, 
that sin is the wandering away from the Father, the how we wander away from Him, um, and we choose isolation and darkness when we, instead we are called to community and light. And and so, you know, Jesus as God and the only only instance in a major world religion where God humbles Himself to become like us, uh, you know, to become. All in all things, human in all things, but sin, and to allow himself to be killed by us, uh, in in order to save us, and uh, and he brought in how the in the first reading or the second sorry the second reading from Philippians that most biblical scholars believe that that those verses are an ancient hymn from the early church, like within the first twenty years after the resurrection, this was a a, a song, a, a liturgical song. That's the that one that says. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Right. Which is kind of cool. Like yeah. that, that that's preserved. Right. St. Paul preserves this hymn that we otherwise wouldn't know. I don't know if I've ever heard that set to music. I'm sure it must have been. I think it's chanted in, in uh, it, I've heard it chanted in like even in prayer, like a uh-huh. liturgy of the hours. Um. Yeah, and and he also mentioned how they believe that the part, you know, death, you know, gave himself to elf up to death, even death on a cross, that even death on a cross part would have been Paul's insertion and that the... It's not part of the original hymn. And that the people reading the original letter or hearing it proclaimed, that would have been jarring, like even death on a cross, like adding that extra bit. Uh, so it was, um, it was good. And he you know, talked about how... You know, now that we're in the last week of Lent, it's Holy Week, no matter how things have been going for you for in your Lent, to start today, you know, do what you can today. Enter into Holy Week. That reminds me of my favorite St. John Chrysostom hum, Easter homily. Right. Even if you've been, you know, you're the 12th hour worker who's only worked for an hour and you haven't kept Lent at all, come and enjoy the feast anyway. But, right. Um, but yeah, Holy Week, you know, I read something that was was sort of like slamming people for, I mean, and of course we should try to keep Lent, but slamming people for only, you know, keeping Holy Week and, and kind of failing at the rest of Lent. And yeah. Right, as if, yeah. Well, we, we have more to say on something similar to that later on. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, he was encouraging. He was saying like, look, you know, do it. Do the most you can. Like if if you can, read the readings, the the liturgical readings. You know, on your lunch hour this week. You know, on especially on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know, if you can't get to church, then take take the time in your lunch or you know or at some point and read the the, the readings from the services and the, and the masses. He, um, you know, watch the masses streaming online if you can. You know, from the cathedral of the you know our cathedral of the Holy Cross or the, from Rome or whatever. You know, watch them and just do the most you can. Get get as much as you can out of this the what the time that you have left. Which it was it's a great message. I mean, it's never too late to start Lent. You know, no matter how it's been going for you. Um, he says um, there are no limits to how far Christ will go to find us. We're not alone. We're not we're not defined by our worst. 
My note says sink, but I think he meant sin. Sins. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking. I try to take notes on my phone while he's during the homily and uh, autocorrect sometimes does some very yeah. interesting things. Yeah, he'll he'll come in to find us. We're, we are the wandering lost sheep, no matter how alone we are. Yes. I, I like the fact that he's he's he ended by saying that. It's a love affair. Right. Holy Week is a love affair. It's the adventure of Christ in our lives. This is this is what it's meant to be. Right. This is it's kind of like Super Bowl week. You know, when when the uh, when you say what? Yeah. Allow me the sports ball analogy for those of who follow sports. Uh, But the you know, the lead up to the Super Bowl, you know, this is what you've been working for. This is everything that you're. Not just this year, this season has been about, but it's about everything. Your whole life has been bringing you to this moment. And and you kind of should treat every Easter like that. This is what it's about. This is what we've been working for. This is everything is is coming to a head at this moment. Treat it like it. So, yeah, I like that. Give the most. Um, How has your Lent been going, Melanie? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) not great. I mean... I, we we have been doing pretty good with reading Malcolm Geats' uh, "Word in the Wilderness," uh, at least on weekdays. <laughs> I've been I've, I've managed to get a poem in every weekday, but Saturdays and Sundays have not happened. Right. I mean, well, I've you don't have read alouds, right? I've read them, but trying to get gather everyone to listen to it, like it is sort of the thing that they are reluctantly listening to. Okay, that's how it is. For- for what the kids are doing. Right. How no, has but, it been for you? I'm saying I, however, have felt like I've been getting a lot out of it. And I don't know that I would have get, been getting as much out of it, reading it to myself, like sharing it with them, even yeah. if they are reluctant <laughs> victims of my <laughs> inflicting it on them. Yeah. Well, they're um, kids. No, but, but I think they have been clearly listening and taking some parts of it in and thinking about it and talking about it. So it's not like completely all blowing over their heads. Right, right. Um, I I did successfully take the games off of my phone and that has opened up a little bit more space for, I would like to say it opened up more space for prayer, but I would have to really stretch the truth in order to to claim that. Uh, we We made it to confession though. We did get to confession as a family, and that yeah. felt like a huge victory. Um, I, I would say that as Lent's go, this one has been fairly mediocre. Um, something hit me this morning talking about like one of the prayers was talking about how we've been celebrating Lent with the uh, fasting and charitable works, and I was just like, mm, "Yeah." I don't think I've been doing so great with the fasting and charitable works. I guess I've lowered my bar, you know, for what it constitutes, you know, a good Lent or a great Lent. I mean, I, I've decided I'm not going to like set these huge like goals way up here because I never, I never reach those goals. And I always feel bad at the end. Like, Oh man, I'm such a terrible Catholic. Oh, I'm so bad at this. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm such a terrible person. I'm like, Maybe I should just lower the the bar a little bit and just like accomplish things. Just maybe set it where I can actually accomplish and then then raise the bar after that. But like set the bar where I can like I've been praying the rosary every day. I I never 
I, I don't regularly pray the rosary. Honestly, I never pray the rosary. But I don't, rosary was not a regular devotion for me. I've started pr- praying the rosary every day now. I've accomplished that. I feel good about that. I feel like, hey, I've done that. Went to confession, as you mentioned, you know, during Lent, to, to prayer service. That's a good thing. I'm very, I feel accomplished with that. We got the kids there. They all went. <laughs> that is a huge accomplishment to get them all to go uh, with all their anxieties. So, uh, yeah, I feel like there have been some good good aspects of this Lent. I feel like you could, you know, next year I might add some more things, you know, something else I really want to accomplish. Uh, you know, I, I signed out of Instagram on my phone because of the mindless scrolling. Um, uh-huh. I did sign back in on again this past week, so I didn't do so great on that, but I made most of Lent without it, which is good. I have to keep the app on my phone because of the work account is on there. Right. Kind of a pain. I wish I didn't have to deal with that, but you know, it is what it is. So anyway, so that's how our Lent is going and Holy Week is coming and you kind of getting ready for that, trying to plan for that. Brace yourself. Holy Week is coming. <laughs> Brace yourself. Easter is coming. It's I, really I, Easter. Holy Week is the, is going to the services. That's fine. It's Easter and all of the planning for that. It's for, for me, it's the planning of the food and the Easter baskets. Yep. And does everyone have clothes to wear? Which we still like Lucy doesn't have an Easter dress and Ben wants some dress shoes. And I don't think either of those are going to happen. Are going to happen. Yeah. You know, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, Lucy's got other dresses that she wears that, you know, she can wear. It's it not, would be it would be nice for her to have something that was kind of springy and Eastery and not. Be nice, yeah. but it won't. It is not necessary. Yeah. So. Still, yeah, I know. And I know. and we I still haven't sat down and made like the game plan for the food. Right. We we have some ideas of something we might want to have. We decided we we decided what we don't want. Right. We don't want a ham, and we don't want a lamb. Yeah, but I'm not just talking about the main dishes. I'm talking about like the kids expect, uh, hot cross buns on Good Friday, and they expect a. You know, braided bread on Easter. I The things that I always do. And then we have to dye the eggs. And like, there's all of the things that like, if they're going to happen, you can't just, I can't just wait until Holy Saturday and try to do them all. Or Good Friday no, and try that. to do them all. So I have to make my personal game plan for what am I mm-hmm. going to cook when in order to get everything done. But it's also not the end of the world if, so if something doesn't happen. Tradition. <laughs> tradition. Tradition. Oh. Tradition. Tradition. I know the disappointment happens and you know, whatever, but okay. we, we've, we've certainly had Easter's where not everything happened partly because like I was sick or pregnant or whatever, like sure. these things, but I am disappointed when they don't happen as well as the kids being disappointed. And you know, I, I like to, I like to plan ahead so that things don't fall through the cracks. Right. Right. No, there's no, I have no problem with that. If you want to get those done and they can happen, I'm, I'm all for it. All right, let's uh let's move on and talk about things we've been cooking in the the past as opposed to the future. Uh so we made a couple of new recipes this week and the first one was a a copycat recipe. So you know what a, co- a copycat is like someone tr- ha- like has a favorite dish at some chain restaurant and then they figure out how to make it at home so that it tastes like it. Mm-hmm. So I saw this one um Copycat P.F. Chang's Mongolian beef. Now, for, for I gotta pre- preface a couple of things. First, I think I might have been to a P.F. Chang's once in my entire life. I remember think going once with you in like Dedham, we took the kids in Dedham Legacy Place. Yeah, 
long, long time ago. They were a little and, and I have, and it made yeah. no impression on me. But partly because we have so many good independent Chinese restaurants around here, there's no point in going I, to. I mostly remember trying to navigate like who would eat. You would what eat what on the menu? I think there was something that had green beans in it that was especially good. Um, oh, I think yeah, there was the garlic green beans. Um, but that's basically what I remember. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking we probably won't come back because it was kind of expensive and hard for the kids to find something that they wanted to eat. Yeah, and it was it was okay. Okay, so I mainly bring a P.F. Chang bring that up because I didn't pick this recipe because it was a P.F. Chang's copycat. Uh, I picked it because it was uh, for Mongolian beef, and I like Chinese the Chinese beef and broccoli dish that we often get at local restaurants. And while this didn't have broccoli in the recipe, it was easy enough to add. In fact, I added broccoli and mushrooms, and I could have added, and I think I added carrots too, didn't I? No, you didn't, but you could have. I could have added carrots, could have added uh, bell pepper, you know, any, any vegetable. And it was a pretty straightforward, simple dish. So it's it's basically um, some ginger, garlic, soy sauce. It's, it's actually kind of it's kind of a, a um, teriyaki dish, I suppose. Uh, it doesn't have mirin in it, so that's I guess it's not teriyaki. But it's ginger, garlic, soy sauce, um, you and brown sugar, which you simmer in some and, and some water. You simmer to uh, thicken it a bit, then. And the recipe called for way too much sugar. Right. That's one of the things to point out. Is like it, it, it called for, like it, it calls for a cup of soy sauce and a cup of water. So you get two cups of liquid and a half a cup of brown sugar. That is a lot of sugar to liquid. I thought you called for more than that. I, that that's the doubled. Oh. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, it did, it, it did call for it. Um, it was actually calling for... Uh, three. I think it was three quarter cup. Um, I scaled it down. I I, I put notes in to make it less this time. Um, I cut the amount of sugar in half. Basically, I can look. I can look up the uh, the original recipe. The recipe comes from a website called Two Cook In Mamas. Mm. I'll, I'll the link in the show notes. Two Cook In Mamas. Two Cook In Mamas. Cooking, uh, not cook, cook in. Two. What's the two? Two cooking mamas. Yeah, like two moms who are cooking. Oh, gotcha. You know, cooking without the G because it's. Anyway. So, <laughs> um, why is this obvious to me and not to you? Cause... I know I, it's obvious now. I don't okay. know why I didn't, but we didn't pay. So anyway, it's it was like one to one to one. It was half a cup of su- soy sauce, half a cup of water, half a cup of sugar and a half a cup of vegetable oil total. The, the, the vegetable oil is. um separate I'll, I'll come to the second but it's like an equal amount of sugar to water to, to soy sauce it's way too much sugar it was way too way too sweet way, like yeah. it was way overpowering sweet um so i i cut the for the next time i make it i cut the amount of sugar in half i might even may, might even go even less sugar um so you cook the these the sauce ingredients down and while it's cooking down You've you got some flank steak that you've cut into bite-sized strips um, and tossed it with some cornstarch. And then when the once the the sauce is done, you set it aside and then you cook the, the steak in batches in the skillet until they're crispy and browned. Like there's you don't cook them in anything. They're just cooked. Then you just 
throw it in the sauce. And so I threw that in the sauce and I threw in some cooked mushrooms and some broccoli that I steamed in the microwave and, you know, served it over rice. It was, it was pretty fast, pretty simple and easy. I had to say flank steak is not the cheapest cut of meat, but no, I, it's kind of weird. Like all the recipes assume that flank steak is cheap because it was cheap, like 20 or 30 years ago or something. Right. Before everybody discovered it. Right. But now it's one of the most expensive cuts of meat. Yeah. And it's crazy. It's yeah. So, but I, you could totally do this with anything, uh, chicken breast, chicken thighs, pork, you know, uh, strips like pork chops. Yeah, or, I like, I like beef and broccoli. My mom made mm-hmm. a beef and broccoli stir fry when I was a kid. And to me, beef and broccoli yeah. is just one of those comfort combinations in a way that like chicken and pork just aren't. You need something that's fairly tender, and that's one of the reasons why they're right. flank steak. You know, when you cut it against the grain, it comes it, it comes apart pretty easily. So I'd have to f- think of something a cut of beef that was. Yeah, I mean, my mom always did like a like an eye of round that she yeah. really thin sliced. I was thinking London broil. Yeah, that's essentially eye yeah. round. Um, yeah, if you thin sliced it enough, if it was thin right. enough slices and small enough, you'd want to make the pieces fairly small. Cut cut against the grain. Fairly thin. That would work too. So that was pretty good. I I, I might make that again. I, 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 I like that. So the other one we made was a classic. Uh, this was actually request of Bella. She well, actually we, we were doing it at the menu. She asked for something with shrimp, with lemon and cream. 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 Yeah. Oh yeah. You she, ignored the cream. Oh, I didn't know the cream. I just like I heard shrimp and lemon. I'm like, okay, I know what to do. Right. Uh, she actually said shrimp with lemon and creamy sauce. I mean, she didn't she didn't dislike the scampi, but yeah, but she did say cream. Um, I'll have to think of that next time what I could do with that. Anyway, um, so I did shrimp scampi. This this goes back to when I when I was in high school and I worked in an Italian restaurant as a dishwasher. And we had they had lobster scampi, they had shrimp scampi all the time. And like scampi is just in my veins. It is so deeply ingrained in my mind. Uh, and so I'm like, yeah, I'll totally do that. So I got some, uh, luckily small shrimp was on sale this week. So I got some small shrimp, some linguine and it's scampi is and the reason it's a popular restaurant dish is because it's so easy. It's equal parts, butter and oil in a skillet. You throw in some shallots and garlic, fry that up a little bit. Then you toss the the shrimp in, cook it just till it's barely done. Uh, it's, it's also some white wine um, and then lemon after the the, the shrimp is, is kind of done uh, and a little more butter to make it sort of uh, emulsify the sauce. And then you pour it over pasta. Actually, what you should do is put pasta in the pan because it's the starches on the pasta should thicken it up a bit, the sauce a bit. And that's, because not everybody likes the the pasta dressed, I have to keep the pasta separate. So the sauce was a little liquidy. I think what I would do is just make it as per the recipe and then just make extra pasta for the child who or, doesn't want. Yeah, or leave some of the pasta out for that child. Right. Right. I think that's what I'll do next time because it really wanted. It wanted to be in this the sauce in the pasta, not on yeah. the side. Yeah, because it, it, it was a little liquidy. It, it, that would have been nicer if it was a little thicker. Um, but it was good. It was tasty and it was easy to make. It was very fast. Uh, I would to- totally do that again. So 
those are the uh, two two recipes. And then you made to yesterday. You made by request something for uh, Holy Week. And right. So some long time ago, uh, when you were working for the Archdiocese and doing the radio show, mm-hmm. you brought back samples from a company that was doing a fasting bread. Yes. The in fact they were they had a the owner is Catholic and had a website on fasting, which is ironic given he owns a bakery. And he, uh, it's a bread bakery for restaurants, you know, one of these fancy places. But he started doing this thing on the side where they made fasting bread. But it was based um, on old recipes, right? Right. So I found something that was sort of similar online. I, I don't think it was his recipe or maybe it was. But um, anyway, so it's basically a cranberry pecan bread. Um, you want to say a little bit about why this is fasting bread? I have no idea. So I mean, well, I, I no longer remember enough to say to speak coherently on it. Just really quickly, when we think of fasting on bread today, we think you know big loaves of plain white bread. But in the past, people in you know hundreds of years ago, they didn't. They knew that you can't survive on just plain white bread. They had to be hearty. Had to give you nutrition and sustain you especially because most men and women of those days were laborers they worked hard all day and so the bread was had other things in it. it had fruits and nuts and you know all kinds of stuff in it to sustain you so that you're not the the idea with fasting isn't to starve <laughs> it is to, to, to deny yourself but it, it isn't to like have zero energy throughout the day and so you can't get anything done um so Fasting, actual fasting bread from the, you know, historically has been heartier. So right. like heart, whole grains and that sort of thing. Yes. So this has like whole wheat flour and it has whole oats and uh, pecans and cranberries, except I didn't have cranberries. So I substituted uh, some dried cherries and raisins. I didn't have quite enough dried cherries to make up the whole. I actually think I liked it better with the dried cherries. I mm-hmm. really liked the flavor of those. Um, and I think in the future, I might add some other fruits to it, too. I mean, it's not quite as fruity as, as like a fruitcake. Right. Um, but it's but it's a fairly hearty bread. Um, and it's it's got a really nice flavor because you use maple syrup as a sweetener. Um, and I, I really like that maple flavor to it. Um, so that gives it kind of a that plus the nuts and the fruits give it a kind of distinctive flavor. Um, and there's this like the recipe I found from Catholic cuisine, like does a whole very cutesy, like the deep spiritual meaning of every ingredient. And yeah. that's just not I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just really not my style. And so I kind of. I don't go into that with like the kids or anything because it's just if you were cooking with kids and like little kids and you really got into that, that's awesome. Um, but not me. <laughs> Do we have a link for that? Is that in the uh... Uh, Catholic cuisine has a um, a recipe that's basically I since lost the one that I had and I looked it up and that's the one that looks closest. And they said something about a radio show or something. So it could even be from your radio show. I don't know. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Um, I will, uh, I'll give it a, it, the website used to be, was uh, live the fast. That's right. Now, now that you mentioned it, live the fast.org or .com or something. Um, 
anyway, I'll look for it and see what, what, uh, what I can find on their website. Cool. So that's, uh, that's what we've been cooking. Let's talk about things we've been reading and watching. I finished another book two weeks in a row. Wow. I am on a roll. Although it helped that this was a, um, a short book. No, it wasn't that short, but it was an anthology of short stories. Uh huh. And I actually didn't read every short story. So you sort of nominally finished a book. Well, I finished as much of it as I was going to read because some of it was not that good. Right. That's that's an interesting thing about like reading anthologies, like short story anthologies, is you it can be very uneven. Right. Yeah. So there was some good there was some good stuff there. I mainly picked it up because it had a short story from Jim Busher from the Dresden Files. Uh, which was really good. I really, you'll really enjoy yeah. that when you read it. I, I will read it one yeah. of these days. At least read that. Th- read that, right? Yeah. Uh, but there were some other ones in there. There was some. There was there was one. Okay, so that oh, let me back up. The book is called Instinct: An Animal Rescuer's Anthology, and it is a fundraiser for uh, no kill animal shelters. Okay, and so they're all stories about animals, and anim- either. People rescuing animals or animals rescuing people right. or both. Okay. Um, so in this case, uh, there was one story. It, it featured these parents and their kids and it was a, it was a science fiction. So it, it was, took place in the future. And like the one of the kids was sick and, you know, mom comes out of the sick kid's room and says to the dad, she's unconscious now. like. <laughs> Meaning she's asleep. Like who talks like that? Nobody. Like if you came out of a kid's one of our kids' bedroom and said she's unconscious now, I'm like, do we need to call an ambulance? Like, did she hit her head? Was this a person who normally talked with overly large words? This might have been one of the only sentence this person said in the entire book. I think. Uh, I mean, the entire story. So it wasn't like trying. They were trying to like beat characterization. I don't know. Yeah, it was just kind of. It was just weird. It wasn't the main characters. The main characters. Uh, you know, wife, I think it was. Yeah, it was. Just, <laughs> it was but there were other ones that were really good. And uh, there was one, the last one in the book that I read, it might have been the last in the book, period, was it took place near f- future in sort of a world like Jurassic World Dominion, where all of the um, dinosaurs have are roaming the earth and everything is falling apart and society has collapsed uh-huh. it's post-apocalyptic and this guy's up in wyoming you know living in this junkyard and trying to survive and it involves a t-rex that doesn't act like a t-rex we expect like from jurassic park so uh-huh yeah it, that was a pretty good one there was some good ones in it so you know i you know i would say 80 percent of the book had good stories interesting stories uh-huh um I'm I'm not sure I would read more from everyone in it, but I, there were a few. I'm like, because some were part of series, like there was like a, a excerpt or, you know, connected to a wider series of books that this author has written. Some weren't, some were one-offs. And there was a couple where I'm like, I'd read more by that person. That's, that, I'm kind of curious about that. So uh, I may go back through it and, and, and kind of look for some people, which is one of the great parts. One of the reasons to read an anthology is to, you know, be exposed to lots more authors and stories than you would otherwise. So that's what I was re- reading. Uh, I've I've now started a new um, World War II history series by Rick Atkinson uh, on. Uh, it's called the the Liberation Trilogy. It's the the series, 
And the first book is called An Army at Dawn. And it this one follows um the war in North Africa. Right. The beginning of the war. So I'm looking I'm it's so far pretty good. Looking forward to it. You uh, I, wanted a you had a book you want to talk about. Right. I'm still as far as like my personal reading, I'm still slowly making my way through Sigrid and Unset's Burning Bush, which is really good. It's just it's a really long novel. And it's it's not quick. It's a it's a thoughtful, deliberate novel. Uh, but Sophie and I finished one of the books that we've been reading together for her school, uh, which we really enjoyed a lot. Uh, it's called Krakatoa by Simon Winchester. And it's kind of a history book. It's kind of a science book. It's kind of a lot of everything. It was really cool. It went back into sort of like, what do we know about the island, like from from histories. It went into the Dutch colonial history um, in Sumatra and Java. And it went into like talking about like the telegraph and it talking about like the British scientists and why Krakatoa was this like big thing in the public consciousness. Like everyone all over the world knew about it when Krakatoa erupted um and like so so very cool and then like talking about all sorts of different phenomena like the 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 history of plate tectonics basically and biology and geology and it was really a comprehensive book and simon winchester is one of these authors who really does sort of a deep dive and throws himself into the work personally and so he had like descriptions of his own visits to Krakatoa and his younger days working as a geologist um in Iceland and it was just a really good book so he and I were reading it basically we'd read a few chat a few pages a day um taking turns like I'd read it one day and she'd read the next and it took us several months to read like maybe eight or nine months, something like that. Um, but because I think we started it back in like August, maybe. Or even earlier. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, it was it was really good. Highly recommend it. Simon Winchester also wrote The Map That Changed the World and The Professor and the Madman. Uh, the Professor and the Madman was about the writing of the Oxford English Dictionary in part. Right. Which a book, a movie has been made of that. Right. Starring. Um, which I was, I was actually disappointed in that one because there was a lot less of the Oxford English Dictionary and a lot more about the madman. Um, so that was kind of actually a little bit of a lockdown. But I really liked the map that changed the world, which is about the first geological survey map of England. Like the first ever geological survey map mm. of anywhere, really was done in England. And it was this really fascinating story about um, this engineer who was working on canals and train cuts and mines. And Mm -hmm. like the the very beginning of the idea that the geological layers are the same, like whether you're in the far North or the South and that there's a consistency and that the further down you go, the older the layers are like, that was a novel idea. Right. We, We take it for granted these things like, you know, that you would map such things that this was how the the earth is constructed and all these ideas, but these were not 
taken for granted before. Right. So I, anyway, that was a really fun book. Uh, it was not an easy book. Like, I don't think Sophie could necessarily have read it on her own. Um, the Krakatoa? The Krakatoa book. Yeah. But, but it was good. Um, good. I mean, I, I learned so much about all sorts of different things, including Dutch colonial history, which I knew nothing about. See, I love these books that are like, they're ostensibly about a very specific thing. Uh, Mark Krolinski's books are often like that. Right. And yet what they show is, is how the, this specific thing is connected to so much else. Like his book on um, salt. Right. I you love I, I'm partway through salt and I, I think I might actually might read it with the kids, although there's a few places that need to be edited a bit. Yeah. Milk was another really good one. Right. It's the idea of like, milk. Milk is such so basic. So much. So much. So yeah. much history, politics, society. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, Krakatoa, if you're if you like nonfiction or even if you don't like nonfiction, it might still be good. It, for might, you. it might still make you like nonfiction. I was a child. Did not like any young adult did not like nonfiction. And so I'm kind of late to the party and going, wow, some nonfiction is really exciting and interesting to read. <laughs> so um, let's talk about things we've been watching. Uh, I've started a new series uh, watching on Netflix called The Night Agent. This was part, I, I only know about it from the recommendation engine that it said, hey, you've liked these other things. You might like this. So The Night Agent is, I think, based on a series of books, and it's about this young junior FBI agent who, uh, a, a year previously to the to the start of the series, stopped a, well, didn't stop, but um, intervened during a bombing attack on the metro in Washington, D.C. He saved many, many lives, but the train still got blown up and he got injured and that sort of thing. And and then afterward, he was given this job working in the basement of the White House in this windowless room called uh, the Night Action Room. I think it is called with the watch, basically waiting for this phone to ring. This this very particular phone that would only ring uh, when these special night agents would call in for assistance or what have you. And it was a direct line to the White House because. Um, you find out in this course of the series, it's not spoiling anything to tell you that the night agents are um, special investigative agents that report directly to the president for very special situations, national security situations. And so this guy is manning this phone. And then one night the phone rings. He's not like on the graveyard shift. The phone rings and it's this young woman Um She's been asked to call the by someone to call the, the this number and tell them, you know, these code words that activate the situation. And so this guy is kind of a Boy Scout, but he's also um, his father was also an FBI agent who died, but was thought to be a traitor. Um, he had been accused of being a traitor before he died. And people think he he killed himself as opposed to being killed uh, and he, his, the son maintains his innocence. And this, so there's a whole subplot about that. But there's also this plot about him and this young woman. And she's actually a tech entrepreneur. And there, there's apparently somebody in the government. Who high up in the government, who is a traitor, who's uh, commissioning acts of terrorism against the U.S. 
like somebody in the White House, perhaps. So it's kind of interesting. I'm only three episodes in, maybe four. It is not like it's not like super well written, you know, like a high, a high level. Um, what do I what would I compare it to? I mean, I, I'd almost compare it to like decent network TV. It's not like. I don't know. It's not like as well written as The Last of Us or some of these other more compelling shows. Uh huh. But it's pretty good. It's decent action, and you know, it's I. It's enough to keep me engaged in watching to see what happens and who it is. And uh, they they just in the last episode introduced this um, new character who's this uh, secret service agent who is a hero who got injured and is coming back and and he's. But he's this old guy, and you know, should he be coming back? I'm like, he's not old. Like, that guy, how old's that guy? And I know that actor. He was in 24 with the uh, with Kiefer, uh, Kiefer Sutherland. Um, he was President Palmer in that. He's not that old. I look him up. He's a year older than I am. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> old, old over the hill. Old. Put him out to pasture. So, although he does look young, he he, he actually he's one of these guys who's kind of ageless. Uh, so the night agent pretty good so far i'll let you know how it goes i don't it's not like super like gory there is no there's no skin in it you do see like one guy's half of his butt in the shower that's about it but you know there's no nothing other untoward the next episode may in fact you know (laughs) go off the rails and have a hbo style orgy or something but uh so far so good okay Um, so uh the we watched the latest episode of The Mandalorian with the kids. We did. The Pirate, it was called. Good. Another good episode. Yes. Um, yeah, I like the way the story's going. Um, I'm interested in the what they're doing with Bo-Katan. Yes. And where they're going with this. And I, I find the themes of faith very interesting. Right. There is a lot of... This is probably the most religion I've seen in Star Wars. Maybe. You know, apart from the jet, quote unquote, Jedi religion, which right. is not really a religion. Right. Yeah. 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 It, but it's very interesting to see, like, they're, they're using words like apostate, convert, uh, the creed that they take, the way. I mean, the, the word, they, they go, this is the way. That's when early Christians didn't call themselves Christians. Right. They called themselves followers of the way. And and redeemed. Of course, yeah. the Mandalorians are not very like the early Christians in that weapons are their religion. So um, I'm not saying that, I know. I know. I'm, I'm, well, no, no. I'm not saying that Christianity should be more warlike. But if I got to wear cool armor, <laughs> uh-huh. I'd be OK with that. Um, the one thing I felt a little bit weird this season is that. I'm having a little hard time wrapping my head around where they've taken the character of Grief Karga. He's gone from being uh, the head of a bounty hunter's guild to high magistrate. But it's not the fact that he's the high magistrate. Like, I could buy, buy that. It's that suddenly the guy who was running the bounty hunter's guild, who you would think would have some sort of basic sense of self-preservation and security, has become completely incompetent and keeping these people safe. I mean, yeah, I mean, he, well, in that first season, he actually wasn't all that great at it. <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. He, he, 
But he some he must have got to the the position. He had some he was street smarts. Some street smarts, and I felt like they had ditched any sort of street smarts. Like he comes across as like if they put some other new character in that position as magistrate, I could have bought it that they were, they were that clueless. But he's not as clueless as the guy in book Book of Boba Fett who was running the the Mos Espa. He was like the second, the, the deputy mayor or whatever uh-huh. of Mas Espa. He's not as clueless as that guy, but yeah, he's not quite as competent. Like he's more blustery politician now than he was before. Yeah, I just felt like they didn't sell that change of direction for him well, as a character. One of the things that they, I don't think they've done a real good job of is is really letting us understand how much time has passed it's been like four years since season one in internal to the the show right i don't feel like they really conveyed the passage of passage of time um and And part of it is that grogu ages so slowly right but i also felt like the the whole um navarro like it had how many citizens in it like 30 people who lived in that entire city. You mean the people who escaped? The people who escaped out of the city. Well, the city. those are the ones who escaped. Right, but but even so, like, and when there's that city, the only city on the planet? Like, I mean, well, that's always, that's a, that's a general problem, problem with all TV science fiction is the monoculture, mono city planets. Right. Like every planet has one culture, one climate, and one city or maybe a handful like on Tatooine you have Mos Eisley and Mos Espa but in general yes like oh it's a desert planet oh it's an ice planet hey look at look at earth we have all of those environments <laughs> that's it's like like oh it's Dagobah the swamp planet that is a problem with Star Wars in general right I mean you guys you just sort of have to suspend disbelief is, um, is there any part of Navarro that isn't a giant lava field because maybe you want to live over there Right? <laughs> Maybe you don't live in the middle of the lava fields. Anyway. <laughs> but on the whole, but 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 I mean, that's sort of a minor quibble in terms yeah. of really I I like the show and I like where it's going yeah. and it's working for me. And a huge cameo. Surprise cameo. That was fun. From from another show. Uh we won't, I don't want to spoil it, but there was a big like there was it was a big like, wait a minute, is that who I think it is? And it's like it's the same voice. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was um pretty awesome. But but too short in terms of like well, and the implications of where he was. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting. Anyway, so that was the Mandalorian. Uh and then we watched the last two episodes of The Bad Batch. Completely crushed, crushed me. It was it was like a shot to the kidneys, shot to the jaw. I mean, it was, it was, they were that hammering was, you from all sides in this Yeah, one. that, I'm, I mean, it was good, like. It was good. As storytelling, it was good storytelling. But what it, I don't like is the fact that this was the season cliffhanger and who knows when we're going to be seeing the next season. So they left us in a really bad, bad place. It was a bad place um, for the bad batch. And maybe this is too spoilery, but I really think that people who are watching this with their kids should know. A character dies. Right. A character who's not a minor character dies. And I was not prepared for that 
in any way, shape or form. And then to have that happen with like then a cliffhanger following it with no resolution really left, I think, everybody kind of feeling shell shocked. And right. Well, character dies, betrayal by a major character. They're left in a very precarious, bad situation. You know, yeah, it, it was bad, bad, bad. <laughs> yeah, like I, I can't think of when I've seen a worse cliffhanger. As an adult, I'm okay. Like this is fine. This is just a storytelling. It's right. for the kids. This is. They were like, I what? Kind of, <laughs> I kind of feel like they forgot a little bit that this was a kids show. Like this was kind of dark in the same way that that Andor is dark and. Maybe yeah. the maybe it's the, animated, but it is right. maybe the, there was yeah. there was a little bit at the end that I think was maybe supposed to be more helpful, hopeful than I felt it was. It felt kind of sinister to me, but maybe it was supposed to be hopeful. Right. There was an interaction with another couple of characters that could be interpreted as being a hopeful note, but it could also be a sinister note. Yeah, I yeah. had a hard time reading that as hopeful, but. But I'm wondering if maybe I was supposed to see the difference between the end of this season, and the end of the of the first season is the first season also had major catastrophic things happen. But at the very end, it ended on a up like a hopeful note. I'm trying to remember how did it end? Um, they were in the ocean. After something having sunk. I don't want right, to get spoilers. Right, right, right. There was there was. They were all together, all of them. Yeah. And then one went off on his own. But it was the, but it was a generally hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was nobody dead. Well, that too. That too. Well, none of the major characters were dead. A lot of minor characters. A lot of minor characters. Yeah. I mean, the Bad Batch is definitely not cheery. No. I mean, it's a, it's a war show. I mean, it's about soldiers. Right. It's about soldiers. And I mean, it's lighter than other things. It's lighter than the Mandalorian. I think it is lighter than Andor, certainly. Right. But, oh, it is. It's definitely lighter yeah. than, but it's still. It's, it went, got, it's got its dark moments. It ended in a in a dark, in a relatively dark place for a show like it. Like it is. Yeah. Yeah. It was. I'm, I'm, I'm upset. <laughs> I had it spoiled for me, the 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 character death was spoiled for me beforehand because I stupidly wandered into the wrong place on the internet before I watched it and uh and saw. Yeah. I can't believe Blank died. <laughs> like oh, what? I hate that. Yeah. Spoilers. Yep. So um And of anyway. course and of course one of our children opted not to watch because they were having panic and so now we're all having to step on eggshells because we can't even talk about it openly until this child has caught up and watched the last two episodes. Right. Which is also creating some extra tension on top of things because like not only did this end on a bad note, but then now we can't like process the way we usually do as a family by talking about it. (laughs) That's, that's hard. We have to get this child to watch it. (laughs) Just watch it. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, so that's what we've been watching and uh, we'll, you know, so now that uh, I'm almost glad, though, that Bad Batch season two is done so that we don't have to kind of figure out how to watch all of this TV shows together as a family. (laughs) We don't do a lot of TV watching as a family. No, our kids don't watch a lot of TV, period. So this is basically it. Mandalorian and Bad Batch are pretty much what they watch. I mean, 
they occasionally will watch um watch a movie a movie or a few episodes of a show like sometimes the the older girls will decide to take their screen time as a oh what shows. is that, what is that show that Sophie likes miraculous ladybug the miraculous ladybug which is an animated teen superhero show yeah set in france france uh france uh, and then and sometimes like when some kids are at scouts and the other kids aren't they'll watch a couple of shows like that. they watch episodes of rebels and clone wars <laughs> that's what they, um, they used to watch looney tunes oh yeah then they've true. they've graduated to rebels and clone wars because i think they watched all the looney tunes that i could find oh they might be able to find more there is so much more to watch but uh, i know it's safe all right so that's what we've been watching now we talked about today's homily at the beginning of the show, but uh, that's because this something we want to talk about here at the end. And this is an article that you found that was posted on uh, Facebook. Right. It's from Homiletic and Pastoral Review, which is a magazine generally for priests and deacons to help them in their homilies and pastoral work. Uh, and it's a it's the magazine is published by Ignatius Press, so it's generally a considered a conservative or orthodox publication or from that point of view. So the article is titled what many priests no longer believe. And it was published this week. The author is uh, a father, Robert McTeague SJ. And do you want to characterize it? I, I said it was extremely bitter and cynical and okay. Well, and judgmental. Okay. Let me try to give him the benefit of the doubt of what he's what what no, I think he's trying I know, to do. But, but this is this is my takeaway. OK, so he, he's basically talking about how there are so many faithful priests with a zeal for souls who are sick at heart and discouraged and anguished because they the, their experience of the sacraments in their parishes are so bad. And he said he's. um surveyed friends from around the country, around the United States and gathered them in all, you know, a lot of these experiences into these collected observations that he calls the fictional St. Typicals and what it's like. And he kind of goes through this. This is what, you know, the masses on Saturday vigil is like in Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening. And, and so what it's, what, what he's getting at is, People aren't living up to the ideals and standards of the way we should be celebrating mass. But way it comes across is all like all the people who go to church do so badly. No matter no matter what you choose to do, you're doing it wrong. Right. Like every like he lists the masses: the Saturday vigil, the Sunday morning, the Sunday afternoon, the Sunday evening, and he criticizes everyone who goes to every single one of those masses right for the, they're they're choosing to go to this mass for the wrong reason why like if right. you go to the early morning mass it's because you you can't wait to get on with the rest of your day and you're just getting mass out of the way but if you go to the later right. mass it's because you almost slept in and if you go to the even later mass you had to just sleep in and like and then the, the Sunday night mass, the last chance mass where you couldn't be bothered to get to mass earlier or you had a hangover or and it's just like every everything he describes 
everybody like he describes how poorly dressed everyone is, how, the bad attitudes of people, people uh, looking at their phones as they're walking to church, people rushing out of the pews at the end, the way people receive communion. There is no good words for anyone. There's just criticism for everyone. And I'm like, wow, how sad, Father, that this is what you think uh, is going on in your parishes. Is is there is there not 10 good men? <laughs> I feel like it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Are there not 10 good parishioners left in the parish? Right. I mean, I, I, mean, I think he's trying to talk about why priests are discouraged and I think he's trying to suggest what they can do about it, but it just comes across as a laundry list of complaint complaints. Well, let me be clear. All the things he describes, all the problems, they are real. There are real instances of this. There are people who show up at mass and just are bumps on a log and people who show up dressed in outlandish outfits. And there are people who, you know, uh, are running out the back of the church as soon as practically possible after receiving communion, you know, and all these other problems. But it's not everyone. But also, as I'm talking about this, this article with several of my friends, you know, one of my friends pointed out, I was one of the people running out of the church as soon as we received communion because my autistic child was having a meltdown and they really needed to get out or like, like basically there was no benefit of the doubt that maybe just maybe some of the people who are engaged in this behavior have good reason and are acting in good faith and doing the best that they can. It was all the most cynical possible reason for every behavior was the one given. Like it felt very judgmental and lacking in any benefit of the doubt towards towards people the other thing that it it kind of ignores is, is at the stage of where we are in are the church in the united states today only about i'm going to err on the high side about 15% max of self-identified catholics actually go to church on sunday in other words all of the people he's criticizing are the ones showing up they're the ones who are going. They're the ones who are making it there. They're the ones who are, however they're dressed, however, they, whether they're tired or awake, whether they forgot to turn off the ringers on their cell phones or not. He particularly has a thing about people's cell phones, ringers going off in mass. Uh -huh. You've got a couple hundred people. If one person out of like half of 1% of everyone forgets every week and gets a phone call, you're going to get a ringer every week. That's just the, that's just, but that's nuts. one person, like not everybody, like one person's cell phone off everybody yeah. else. Why are you so thrown off by a cell phone going off? Just, you know, ride with it. The, the thing is, you know, these are the people coming, they're making it there. So instead of criticizing them for what they're failing at, encourage them for what they're doing. And father, the, the one thing that comes across in this article is, the one group that is free from criticism, like even the deacons get get criticized in this. Right. The one group that is free of all criticism, free of all any blame whatsoever, are the priests. The priests are perfect in this article. Well, right. From a certain point of view, I kind of felt like the the fictional priest that he sort of situates as like looking out at upon the congregation before mass starts 
I'm like, and brooding on the faults and failings of the congregation. I'm thinking maybe he should be like spending the time before mass praying for his congregation instead of judging them. Like there's sort of this, the priest doesn't come across well, but he's not intending to criticize the priest. The the one bit that might be seen as a, a little bit of criticism of the priests in this is toward the end, he says, let's start with an awkward admission. The masses at St. Typicals have been on autopilot for a very long time. No one is really in charge. No one thinks about what's done there or why. Things just happen. And as long as the collection is taken up, Holy Communion is distributed, and it doesn't take too long, no one really thinks about how mass is conducted and how it ought to be conducted. Now, the priest is not mentioned in that it's sort of by implication, but a lot of other people are in there by implication too. the, the musicians and the pastoral associates and deacons and everybody else, like who's on the parish staff or parish liturgical volunteers. He's just lumped in with that. But there's not a whole lot of self-reflection on how many of these problems could be laid at the feet of the priest. I mean, there kind of is like sort of in the we need to do better we exhortation do this, at the end. Right. We need to. I mean, there's sort of I think the he's the, the takeaway is supposed to be all the things that the priest can do. I just like I don't disagree with what he wants. Like he, he says at the end. um. The pastors can start with a close reading of the general instruction of the Roman Missal, followed by a profound examination of conscience. Agreed. Then they need to walk their staff through the what, the how, and above all, the why of the mass. Agreed. Faithful liturgy can't be seen as one of Father's quirks. Uh, Obedience to liturgical norms is not simply an option. Pastors will have to undergo conversion in order to lead others to conversion. Congregations need to be reformed, informed, and formed. This is going to take time and lots of repetition. I agree with all of that. It's the way he does the entire. Now, I think he may have intended this as tongue in cheek humor, but it's it's very typical of today's. uh, Negative, sarcastic humor, and it comes across as hurtful and harmful. Yeah, I didn't read humor or tongue in cheek in it, but it. A lot of pre I've worked with a lot of priests, whether when I worked to the archdiocese and in other places I've, I've and a lot of priests have they're they're hurt. They're bitter. They feel like they don't get support from above from their bishops. They don't feel like they get support from the the pastoral center or the the diocesan staff. Uh, they often feel like they don't get the support of most of their parish. They get mostly complaints. I get that. <laughs> I mean, they're in a very difficult place and difficult position. So I can understand, but this is not the answer. The laundry list of complaints about how everybody is doing everything wrong doesn't seem to be the best way to address that kind of deep hurt and cynicism. Right. It just seems to be laying it on thicker. Because if I were the single mom that he that he kind of mentions or the deacon, or the musician, cantor, or, you know, what it, or the, all the other, you know, he doesn't speak of them as if they were actual people in his parish, but more um, archetypes. Types. Yeah. yeah. But if I fell into any of those categories, 
it, I would be hurt by it, by that. I mean, I suppose I'm, I'm in some of them, I guess, you know, the parents with the, the herd of kids that they're hurting in and the, or the teenagers or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, I felt like he, sort of the there was one moment where he talks about all the people stumbling in while looking at their cell phones when they. Well, no, no, he in fact, not in the church, like he was criticizing them for walking from their car to the door of the church while pulling out their phones and looking at them. Getting one last dopamine hit was his assumption. Whereas I was thinking, I frequently pull out my my phone either like in the car or the parking lot or sometimes after I'm sitting in the pew to put it in do not disturb mode and to pull up the day's readings and to use the Liturgy of the Hours app on it. Like, right. There are so many reasons that one might be using one's phone that don't involve getting a dopamine hit. Why don't you pick up the missile in the pew? Because the mis- the text in the Missile of Pew is often small, and some older folks, they want to have it large for them to read, like your dad does with his iPad well, at church. Well, frankly, me, I, I try to follow along in the Missalette, and it hurts my eyes, and so I pull out my cell phone and I where I can enlarge the type, and that's what I use for exactly. the readings. Right. It's just, I mean, he, he, he kind of broad brushes these things as if, these are common experiences like you yes all of the things he mentions probably have happened sometime someplace but it's but he makes it sound like this is the common experience this is what everyone is doing it's just i don't know it's i think it does more harm than good and i know that when i was younger and and not that long ago (laughs) not that young I might have said a lot of the similar things. I've I've got old blog posts about church, liturgical music, for instance, that I probably re- should regret. Um, I'm older now, and Father is apparently at least as old as I am, based on his uh, bio. Is he's probably as old as I am, and so he's probably should be as mature. You know, I shouldn't say as mature as I am. He is as old as I am. I'm glad that I've I've kind of realize the error of my ways i hope father will too um because this is no way to get change one last bit the the comments on the article one of the most common refrains is well this doesn't happen at our traditional latin mass you should come to our traditional latin mass father you won't see any of these things and i probably true but that's probably because you're a self-selecting group. Well, from some things I've heard, sometimes people who fit into the categories that Father is criticizing might be made to feel unwelcome at a traditional Latin parish. Not all traditional Latin parishes, but at some, right? the people who are dressed. Uh, well, I know a family with who had kids who were not the the quiet sitting in the pew type who got uh shushed and frowned at so that they never went back you know i mean they right they they, they tried it but they got you know nasty looks because yeah. their kids so were perfectly silent if you don't have the the foibles of fallen humanity in your parish it might be because you're all perfect but it might also be because you've driven away some of the people who <laughs> Are right. at the other ma- other parishes because they're not welcome at your parish. Just a thought, right? Right. So, 
I mean, it emphasizes to me the the necessity to pray for our priests. They are they have a very difficult uh, place in our church today, in our society. They get it from all sides. I I get that. Right. I, I mean, get I mean, that. I think right. It's, it's it's above all. It's it's to me. It's sad that the the priest can be this. Somebody should have taken Father cynical aside when they saw this article and said, "I don't think that you want to." publish this you want to do this in a different way someone someone should have said something because and he probably didn't expect it to get out there you know he, he intended for a very particular audience but the nature of the internet is what it is and you know people share these things so yeah anyway um yeah well, i'm kind of sad we end on a kind of critical note as we head into holy week but um maybe uh it this is a reminder to this is a very hard week for pastors all priests anybody who works in a parish please give them the benefit of the doubt extend them some grace and pray for them um and maybe do something nice for them after easter is over definitely it is <laughs> it's not easy no no father chip and i are gonna go see a movie together we're gonna go do, do a coffee and cinema uh on with a one of the new movies that are out so that's that's in, our d- during uh, Easter week during Easter season. We haven't ah, decided when yet, okay. but uh, that's going to be our thing. He's he said after East, after Holy Week we can talk about it. So we're going to put something on the schedule. So that's one of my you know the things I'm going to do with Father Chip. All right, so uh, let's wrap it there. We take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create raising the bets, including Daniel S, David P, Donald A. Father Burke M and Ned G. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue raising the bets and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And that's it for this time. Find links from our discussion in our show notes at sqpn.com slash bets. That's B-E-T-T-S. Send your feedback at the StarQuest Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media. Send us an email at bets at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Write a review at Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with your friends to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. Until next time, I'm Dom Bethanelli. And I'm Melanie Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Raising the Bets on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. Let's science find the show wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash science.